Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, February 1st. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On this week's financial show, we're catching up with the latest in the GameStop debacle. Yes, it's a debacle, folks. It qualifies as an official debacle. We're going to take a look at a couple of upcoming IPOs that investors may want to keep an eye on. We'll answer a listener question, and we'll wrap it up with ones to watch. Joining me this week, as as most weeks, it's certified financial planner Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything? Oh, as good as could be expected with this weather, we're getting all over the country. I know, and I have it better than most. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got the we got the nor'easter up here in Northern Virginia, so we uh, haven't had a whole heck of a lot of snow here in the past few years, but but we made up for it last night and today. And uh, I'm, gl- I'm glad you have power. Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, we do have power. <laughs> we have power. We have heat. And had a fire going all day long yesterday in the fireplace. So, uh, hey, listen, you know, the, the worst places to be than uh, shutting the house with a fireplace and, 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 and full power and TV and internet and all that stuff. And, you know, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, Matt, uh, let's kick off uh, this week's show with clearly a story that's gotten a lot of attention over the past uh, week, and it, it really deservedly so. I mean, this this has become uh something for for the history books i think and it really we can go a million different ways with it but it is the gamestop situation with robin hood i mean we say gamestop there are other stocks included there uh, amc being one um last week this this story really unfolded and it took a lot of weird turns and left a lot a lot of individual investors feeling um left out in the cold to be honest uh but but let's let's just let's open up with this gamestop story and talk specifically right now at least we're not going to dig in everybody kind of knows what's happened here at this point but but let's talk about robin hood in particular, because we're a financial show, uh, Robinhood we talked a lot about here over the, over the past year plus, and how it's working to democratize investing for all and, and really bring it to, to, to more people. And while well, I think you and I would both agree that is a very admirable mission and, and something we can get behind, I mean, it also comes at a cost. And, and, and the way that Robinhood's business model is set up, we're starting to see the we're starting to see the vulnerabilities there and 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 it uh it is certainly playing out i got to imagine their leadership has a few more gray hairs today than they did a week ago <laughs> yeah well, well when you compare robinhood to some of these big brokers that have you know a you know a trillion dollars under management or something to that effect um they just don't have the capital to allow for frequent trading in these stocks that are that are being short squeezed that are spiking and GameStop was just one of them. Um, at one point Friday, I think Robinhood put out a list of fifty stocks that it was that it was restricting. And Starbucks were, was on that list. Man. I General, Mo- I General Motors was. I mean, that just seemed a little <laughs> seemed a little bit out there. Maybe that was a faulty AI. I don't know. But they, they've backed off a little bit. But on some of the high volatility stocks, it's like GameStop. You're still limited to four shares. I mean. Jason tried to buy five before the show and he couldn't do it. <laughs> Not true. <laughs> <laughs> but it, they're, they're still limiting some of these high volatility stocks. And the, the reason they gave, it kind of makes sense to a degree. The, the, their clearinghouse makes them keep a certain amount of capital um, just to cover you know, the, the what ifs. 
Um, there's a line from Ocean's Eleven that I remember that uh, Casino has to hold in reserve enough money to cover every chip plate on its floor. So it's a similar type of situation here. Not calling Robin Hood a casino, although a lot of people treat it like it's a casino. It's, yeah, it feels like one, right? Um, but but it's a similar situation. They have to have enough money because when you make a trade, it takes a few days for that trade to settle and there's money moving around. If someone moves in and out of a GameStop position you know, 10 times in a day, that's a lot of money they're waiting days for it to settle. So it, it, it really creates a, a, a capital problem of money move, being able to move around and, and cover potential losses in the in the in-between time when when shares are moving from one place to another. So long story short, Robinhood said, whoa, 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 this is kind of getting out of hand. We need to bring in some new capital and limit the trading on some of these stocks. I know they raised a, a billion dollars last week. They, I think I read a little over $2 billion today, or maybe it was over the weekend. But they raised a few more, a few billion dollars more of capital that allowed them to kind of back off some of their trading restrictions. But they're not comfortable raising it um, beyond the levels that they're at right now. Like I said, four shares of GameStop. It's they're up to seventy-five shares of AMC. It was one at one point, which AMC is not an expensive stock. <laughs> so if I wanted to invest in that, you told me I could buy one share for fourteen dollars. You know, like what's the why? Why would I do that? Yeah. So it. People on Robinhood's platform, Robinhood has millions of customers. They're a big platform right now. Um, they are considered kind of a smaller player because their average account balance skews lower. They're like newer investors, a few hundred dollars in your account, as opposed to like six-figure 401ks and IRAs and stuff like that. So they haven't heard, the Robinhood is considered kind of a smaller player, but they have millions of customers. And these millions of customers are not happy that they're being told what they can and cannot buy at any given time. That's uh, that's really the issue. It's not that everyone on Robinhood wants to buy 100 shares of GameStop. I'm not generalizing Robinhood investors like that. But the, the point that Dave Portnoy is making, and, and I think Mark Cuban said the same thing, that people should be able to make their own decisions. And the, they need a platform that can accommodate that. And that's why a lot of you're seeing a lot of blowback on that. Yeah, and I mean, I think I, I think you're right. I think that generally speaking, most people just want to be able to say, "Listen, I I, I want to be able to make that choice." I mean, we whether it's going out after a snowstorm or I mean, shoot, man, you can go back and talk about all these lockdowns. I mean, that's part of the argument that a lot of people made is, "Listen, I just want to have the choice to be able to make my own decision." And and I think that you're right there. And and I think I'm glad that you brought up. Um, Robin Hood's capital position and the capital requirements that that exist for brokerages because I the easy out here the easy conversation is to say that they are just screwing the individual investor P- period end of story that's what they're doing because they're afraid that uh, they may be put between a rock and a hard place now I listen I we don't work there we don't we don't know really what's going on but but we do know that those capital requirements exist we do know that the SEC requires certain liquidity and capital uh, thresholds for brokerages to be able uh, to continue operating like this in in you know, we've talked about before too with Robinhood's business model. This is a little bit of a different situation. There's a reason why they've been able to offer zero dollar trades, right? Commission free trades. It's because they're selling that flow off to bigger firms to then execute those trades. And when you look at 
some of those bigger firms, you start to connect the dots and you recognize that there could potentially be a conflict of interest. And then that's where this really, I think, that narrative then really gets out of Robin Hood's control. Um, I, I, I feel like it's, you know, I feel like Robin Hood was caught flat-footed here. I feel like this is a situation they probably never anticipated. I feel like they were clearly unprepared for it financially and otherwise. That has a lot to do with it. Um, but by the same token, you know, what is it, Ferris Bueller? I mean, life <laughs> life comes at you pretty fast. Um, I mean, th- this came to them pretty fast, and, and the internet has, has obviously changed everything. It ultimately makes things a level playing field. We're going to have to see our system adapt and evolve, because if, if you think this won't happen again, I, I would beg to differ. Well, I'd, I'd make two points first, and then I'd say something about what's causing all this. First of all, you, what you're saying is called payment for order flow. That's how Robinhood makes their money. They're not the only one to do that. Um, in fact, the only the only brokers I know that don't do that are Fidelity and Vanguard. I know TD Ameritrade makes a lot of money on its order flow. I know pretty much everyone makes money on order flow. That's that's standard practice for routing your orders to one market maker or another. They're also not the only ones who put restrictions on trading, but they were kind of the most restrictive. Um, I mean, TD Ameritrade, the one I use, they they put restrictions on a lot of the higher volatility stocks. They I just, use them as well. I looked in, I, I went to the site and looked to see if they had any language in there. And I mean, it was very clear. They said, listen, from time to time, we may have to do this. It's it's for everyone's protection. I mean, that's that's right. I look at this and I feel like, listen, I understand people's frustration with Robin Hood, but, but yeah, this isn't necessarily a Robin Hood specific thing. No, they, their, their platform, one, it skews toward traders rather than investors. And number two, I, I their their restrictions were the most restrictive, not to get repetitive with that statement. But really what is doing this, I mean, you're you're seeing a lot of smaller investors trade at high frequencies in a very coordinated manner. And the the zero commission trading really is what's enabling this. There's no friction in the system. If I want to buy and sell 10 shares of Amazon right now 50 times. There's no reason I can't do that in rapid succession at a very at very little risk or very little cost. There's no friction there. If a trade even cost like a dollar, people would think twice before moving in and out of stocks so quickly. But the zero commission trading has really made it possible for smaller investors to really pool their resources together and create these kind of short squeezes. Because back when it was standard practice to, you know, 999 trading commissions, that wouldn't have been a thing. So it, it, they've eliminated the friction in the trading process, and that's what's really enabled this. And it's this is the first time we're really seeing it play out in this kind of coordinated manner. But like you said, now that we know it's possible, it's it would be silly to assume it's going to be the last. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've never bothered with shorting personally. I can tell you, this is just one more reason why I don't think I really have any desire to mess with it. Um, let's talk a little bit about the after effects here, because clearly a lot of Robinhood account holders are up in arms. They feel like they have been um, left left hanging, and whether that's the case or not, uh, there are other platforms out there that are picking up a little bit of that traffic that is uh, leaving Robinhood's platform. And I, I was looking at, um, I was looking at, I, I follow Kate Rooney, CNBC's Kate Rooney on Twitter, and I, I recommend you follow her if you're interested in fintech and stuff like that. She's at kr00ney. Um, but she had a, a tweet up here that was showing the Square Cash app. Um, has been seeing a very uh, large influx of of those leaving the Robinhood platform and and 
going elsewhere, someplace where they feel like maybe there is there's a little bit greater trust factor. Another name on there, and, and someone we've we've uh, we've heard a lot from here recently uh, recently is uh, SoFi, right? SoFi picking up a lot of that excess traffic as well. Well, they have a trading app. A lot of people don't know that. <laughs> they're 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 much better known for their their lending, their their student loans, their personal loans, things like that. But a more recent part of their business, they have a trading app that's really geared toward millennials. It's really an ideal Robinhood competitor. Now there are some stuff, some things that Robinhood does that SoFi invest. It's called SoFi Active Investing, I think it's the official name. But there are some things Robinhood does that SoFi can't can't do, like options trading, for example. Right now, um, it's not set up to do that. But it does. It, it'll let you buy fractional shares. It's very millennial focused. It's very community focused, meaning it gives like you could follow other investors' moves and things like that. It's really, you know, the things that appeal to the trader, the trader crowd. And it's it's a um, being taken public by a SPAC, uh, IPOE, uh, one of Chamath's SPACs, and it's the only Chamath has a huge amount of influence over the, over investors right now. There are a lot of investors waiting to see what his next move is. I have so the, noticed that. <laughs> so the, the fact that this is the only trading app or trading platform that has a direct connection to Chamath is is a big deal. And I mean, the, the stock uh, IPOE, we, we've known they're taking SoFi public for a few weeks. We've talked about it a few times on the show. Um, the stock's up 32% since Thursday on no real news other than the fact that Robin Hood traders are upset <laughs> and, and a lot of them are conceivably looking for another place to go. And it's really significant that Robin Hood put restrictions on today because it shows that wasn't just a one-time thing, that they're having to be careful right now until this whole thing dies down, which, you know, it, a lot of Robin Hood investors could have lived with it if it was like, okay, you can't trade GameStop on Friday afternoon, but when it extends to, to the next week, then it, you know the the likelihood of people trying to switch is is getting higher. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Um, before we move on from this, because I'm certain <laughs> we could probably talk about it next week as well, so we won't beat a dead horse here. Um, I'd be curious to know, just from your perspective, I think I think toward the end of last week, really the conversation was um, less a question and more a statement that Robinhood will never make it past this. And I, I tend to I tend to look at situations like this and take a little bit more of a um, I don't know a little bit more of a moderate approach. I mean I, I I want I mean I don't you know I think that they could certainly make it through. Um, and it does seem like they have raised some more money here recently as well to help deal with this. I mean I I've never been a Robinhood account holder. I never will simply because I don't need it. Um, but but there are still plenty of folks who use that platform. And it feels like they are giving this its due attention. And it feels to me at least like part of this is them looking out for their account holders to an extent. Do you think Robin Hood is able to come out on the other side of this uh, and, and keep growing their business? I, th I think it depends how many customers they actually lose. Robin Hood is, I mean, th they want their investors, but they really don't want to lose their traders. Like you said, they make payment for order flow. So somebody who's moving in and out of stocks constantly is their bread and butter. So and but on the other on the other side of it, switching your brokerage is tough. Like we've talked about, why don't more people leave Wells Fargo because it's a pain to switch your bank? A similar thing exists here. So it, it'll kind of be interesting to see how that plays out. They're not a public company, so we don't get 
too much insight on their on what's happening behind the scene uh, behind the scenes. But I'd have to say that there, if Robin Hood were to go public today, it's not going to get the same valuation it would two <laughs> weeks ago. No, no, and maybe this is a situation where they would rather just be a part of something bigger, right? I mean, maybe there's an acquisition um, on the horizon there. I, I don't know, but clearly, I mean, this this has ruffled a lot of feathers, and um, it remains to be seen exactly how this plays out. But it, it it does seem to me to it seems to me to show that while we have a great system here with our market. Uh, it is not a perfect system. There are things that need to evolve with technology uh, because, yeah, what we, we always talk about the power of network effects as investors, and we look for those investments with network effects. Um, this really shows the power of network effects for investors, like as a collective. I mean, the network and the power of the community is what really facilitated this. And and that isn't going to go away. So it, it feels to me like um, the, the powers that be, you're going to need to give this a very hard look and evolve our system uh, to, to where it, it something of this magnitude can't happen again. Either way, it makes my interest in shorting stocks even less, if that's if that's possible. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. <laughs> All right, Matt. Well, let's let's uh, pivot over to something a little bit more productive and inspiring, a little bit more optimistic, maybe, if you will. Uh, we got a couple of upcoming IPOs here. Sounds like they are uh, in the works here, and we can expect them soon. Uh, first up, I want to talk about Latch. Uh, Latch, a software company that I believe. Uh, it helps ensure the connected building, right? Yeah, they're a really interesting um, play. They're they're going public by SPAC merger. Um, they're merging with a, a Tishman Spire is a is a pretty big real estate company. They had a, a hand in Yankee Stadium, a lot of New York properties that are really fa- <laughs> that's the most famous one I saw on their website. But they've had a hand in a lot of New York properties. They launched a SPAC. They raised three hundred million dollars and just announced that they are going to be taking Latch public. Latch is a smart home technology company is the best way I would describe it. They're known for their smart locks. When I went to CES a while ago, I think I, I saw a Latch smart lock that I, I got a demo of. Um, so that's where the name Latch comes from is the, yeah, the lock. Um, but their big product is called their is their full building operating system. They are their their mission is to bring rental housing into the 21st century. Um, people can you know, open their apartments with their smartphones. They can control deliveries and and visitors and things like that. Um, there's all kinds of connectivity options that you can integrate into there. And their products are not, you don't buy them as a homeowner. They're installed in the entire building. So the building pays for a multi-year subscription to their latch operating system. Um, and their residents get, to, and and the landlords get to benefit from it. So it's it's a really interesting play. Uh, I know um, Chamath is mostly known for his own specs, the IPOs, uh, IPOE, IPOD, IPO, you know all those. But he actually led the investment, the private investment round for this uh, company, the pipe, as they call it, the private or yeah, private investment in public equity. And so that, that wasn't as well publicized, but he's heavily involved in this, and he actually tweeted that this is the best software as a service company he's ever seen. Which is pretty. That's a bold statement. Yeah. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a very early stage company. They're losing money faster than they're getting revenue at this point, 
It's worth mentioning. They're very early stage. That's why the valuation is low. Latch is getting over $500 million as part of this deal. And even after that, they're only valued at $1.5 billion. So it's, it's not a hefty valuation. That capital should give them a lot of ammunition to grow um, and fuel their losses as we go on. But it, it kind of interesting <laughs> statistics. They had 154% revenue retention. That's pretty good for a software as a service company. That might be a lot yeah, of what yeah, we're talking mean, about. Typically, you see the 120, 125, 130, right. and you think, wow, that's strong. And so 154 wow. is pretty impressive. Not bad. And uh, one in 10 new multifamily buildings in the U.S. In, in, built in 2019 were built with Latch, with the operating system installed. So there are 47 million rental units in the United States, another 93 million in Europe. So that's a pretty big addressable market. So this is one I'm keeping on my radar. Um, like the the SPAC is public. It's called TS Innovation Acquisitions is the company taking it public. Ticker symbol is TSIA. Um, so you can trade this now. This is not, it's technically the IPO will happen when the merger deal completes, but you just kind of like SoFi, you can trade it now. Um, it's trading at a pretty decent premium, but not like some of the other uh, Chamath deals. So um, it's one that I'm keeping on my radar. I'm not ready to pull the trigger yet. As we've talked about before, it takes quite a bit for me to get really interested in an IPO, but this is definitely an intriguing one. Yeah, yeah, definitely sounds like it. I mean, that's definitely a big market. I mean, we've seen um, Google making a big investment in ADT, for example. Um, we have seen, well, I mean, another company that I've, I've recommended, Alarm.com, Plays in the in a similar sandbox, so uh, plenty of opportunity there. Particularly as five uh, G build out rolls out and uh, our infrastructure and connectivity uh, continues to uh, proliferate, uh, going to be a lot of different ways, a lot of different opportunities um, in the coming years. And it sounds like Latch could be playing right into that. Um, what about Loan Depot? This is another interesting IPO coming up. And we, we talked a little bit about some lenders here recently. Um, Loan Depot, another uh, mortgage lender going to be IPOing here. And this looks like a, this looks like a, a business with some real traction. Well, you said it. It's another mortgage lender. We've seen quite a few of them come <laughs> yeah. public lately. Um, there was Rocket Mortgage, uh, United Wholesale Mortgage is another one that just recently went public, and uh, HomePoint, which we talked about on last week's show, right? Um, just went public. And it's worth mentioning that Home HomePoint went public at thirteen dollars a share. You know what it's trading at now? I don't. Eleven fifty. Whoa! So it has not That's had the twenty twenty right. IPO reaction or the twenty <laughs> you know the IPO reaction we're used to seeing lately. Yeah, the market like didn't receive it that well. <laughs> What's up, man? So yeah, it didn't triple on its first day. I, that's a, that's a that's a fail. Pass. Um, but so Loan Depot's going public. Uh, TD Ameritrade has it listed on their calendar for Thursday. So it's coming up pretty soon. They're going public the traditional route, not through a SPAC, not through a direct listing, which feels so 2019 at this point. I was going to say, it? man, I don't even understand. <laughs> I don't understand what that means anymore. Like, are you even using a SPAC? Come on. <laughs> Do you even SPAC, bro? <laughs> but um, so Loan Depot, you're right. They do have a lot of traction going on. They first tried to go public in 2015, but pulled the plug because of bad market conditions, which a lot of companies did at that point. Um, they've grown their market share. They're, they're the fifth largest retail mortgage lender. Retail meaning consumer initiated, like a, a, a mortgage lender that you would just go to apply to. They're like a fifth, retail bank. Right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Not like um, 
sold through a home builder or sold through a broker or things like that, direct to consumer. So they're the fifth, fifth largest retail lender in the US. So they're up there. They're a big company. They've grown their market share from 1% in 2014 to 2.6% now, which, I mean, their lending volume has more than doubled over the past year, but you have to take that with a grain of salt. The, I mean, every, like we've talked about last week when we talked about HomePoint, everybody's been refinancing. You can't judge a mortgage lender based on how much volume they did in 2020 because everybody was refinancing their homes. <laughs> yeah. Anyone who didn't refinance their home in 2020, I don't know what they were doing. So it, it you can't really judge it by the volume growth. Judge it by the market share, which is why I quoted that statistic first. Like I said, they went from 1% to 2.6%. So they almost tripled their market share. That's pretty impressive. Um, but like I said, mortgage... There's a reason all of these mortgage companies, I mentioned Rocket, United Wholesale, um, HomePoint, they're all going public right now. It's because they're on kind of like the tail end of this giant mortgage boom of the refinancings and that people were buying homes in record numbers and home prices were going through the roof. So the mortgage, the actual mortgage principal amounts were getting larger because there was so, so little supply in 2020. 2020 was not a normal year for the housing market. And it made a lot of mortgage lenders look very, very good. So I, I mentioned HomePoint's trading for below its IPO price. And I think it's because the market's kind of figured this out. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that the 2020 numbers are making these companies look a little bit better than reality. A little bit of pull forward. I, I mean, I don't want to take anything away from Loan Depot. Their, their growth has certainly been impressive. And like I mentioned, from 2014 to now, they've grown their market share that much. So that's over a longer period of time than just the 2020 great environment. But I, I'm, I'm I'm more hesitant to take a step back and pump the brakes on all these mortgage lenders um, before I would, I would get interested in those. I kind of want to see how 2021 plays out. And I want to see how they do when everyone's already refinanced and that part of the market's kind of calming down. Because yeah. there's only so many people who can benefit from refinancing. I know. You're right. And I remember we talked about that so much if several years back with Ellie May, the mortgage software provider that, you know, we recognize the, the amount of volume that they did in refinancing alone. I mean, purchase was a big part of it. And in times when refis start to to shrink up a little bit purchase does jump in there and take a little bit of that's of, of that share but but it, it really is trying to figure out exactly how much and and yet to your point refi volume has just been so on fire here over the past couple of years i mean it, it you're right it's not normal it's going to slow down and how it impacts those businesses I, I certainly understand them wanting to get in now where they can present really the best case scenario with those numbers yeah, so it makes sense why they're doing this wave of IPOs, but there's also a reason you're not seeing the giant first day IPO pops like you were with like Airbnb and DoorDash or any of those. Yeah, that makes so, a lot of sense. So you, you might actually be able to get in close to the IPO price. So it's- <laughs> Go figure. Go figure. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll definitely keep an eye on it and certainly another one for us to cover here on the show. Uh, Matt, we have a listener question from last week on Twitter at Willy1Mo asked, TMF Math Guy was listening to Industry Focus on the 25th. How does the direct listing of Coinbase affect existing clients from buying shares? I appreciate you. I think that's what he mean, right? The, yeah, yeah. So um, Coinbase announced that it's going to do a direct listing instead of a traditional IPO. Like I just said, traditional IPOs are so 2019 at this point. 
So <laughs> coin, they're going to di- directly list, which is a, a very cost-effective way to go public for companies that don't need to raise capital, which Coinbase really doesn't. They're, they're a very well-capitalized business. Um, we haven't seen all the details, but I know, I mean, they're, trust me, they've, they have enough money. So <laughs> they're going to just list existing shares. An IPO allows a company to sell new shares. Um, an IPO, you might a company might sell 10 million new shares, and when they sell them, they raise capital to grow the business. Coinbase already has a, a, a sec, nice secondary market for its shares, which I'll talk about in a second. But So they're just going to directly list all the shares they had. Uh, Palantir recently did this. That's how Slack went public. That's how Spotify went public. It's not unheard of. So it, it, um, the shares will just start to list. The whisper is that they're targeting a $200 share price. Which tar- which translates to a fifty billion dollar valuation for Coinbase. Wow, wow! Yeah, right, that that was my reaction. Sounds um, a lot. I, I mentioned last time that they were going to tr- start selling shares to um, their their customer base before the IPO. Um, they're doing that through Nasdaq private market, which is not an uncommon way to um, you know sell shares pre IPO. They're not the company is not selling shares. They're letting employees and insiders sell shares to to Coinbase users before the IPO. Uh, if you're a Coinbase user, you should have gotten an email that said uh, something about the net from the NASDAQ private market facilitating this. Um, the actual direct listing is expected in late February to early March. There are rumors that it could get up to about $75 billion in valuation, which I... Um, We've talked about three upcoming IPOs, and I think Coinbase is the one that I'm least likely to invest in. What do you? Oh, what yeah. about you, Jason? Um, yeah, I think I'm probably with you. That's the one that I would understand the least. I would, I would, I would put it. Yeah, I would, I would say just by virtue of the one that I just understand the least. I mean, I understand the hype behind crypto, and I understand what Coinbase does um, as an exchange, but, but yeah, it's the one that I just, I don't have the fullest grasp on. Even at the low end, say $50 billion valuation. I just don't see the upside. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. (laughs) You know, for, for latch with $500 million in cash and a $1.5 billion valuation, I can see them using that to grow to a much bigger company than $1.5 billion. So, I mean, I just see the upside in a lot of these other names. Um, I, I don't see how, I don't see Coinbase being a trillion-dollar company. Maybe I'm short-sighted, but I just don't see it. Well, I'm tending to agree with you there, but I guess we shall see. Now, let the mean Twitter comments begin. At TMF Math Guy. (laughs) Well, let's hope not. Come on, everybody. Be nice. Uh, Matt, before we wrap it up, as always, we like to give our listeners a couple of stocks to watch for the coming week. What is your one to watch this week? I'm watching an apartment real estate company called Avalon Bay Communities that reports earnings later this week. Avalon um, Bay. Sounds they, like a soap opera. They're actually based right in your neck of the woods. I want to say oh, they're, really? they're in the Alexandria area. Huh. Um, they're somewhere in the D.C. area. I know that. But um, So they, they primarily own and operate apartment complexes in expensive areas. Think New York City. Think you know Southern California. D.C. is a big market of theirs. Boston. So there's a lot of fear that though that those type of places are going to have a like mass exodus um, in this new age of remote work. When someone can work from wherever they want, why are they going to rent a Manhattan apartment, for example? Is a, is a big fear. We've seen kind of their numbers trick, trickle down a little bit. Their uh, their vacancies have been a little elevated. Their rent collection's been a little low. 
not alarmingly so, but I'm really curious to see how that goes because they have not really done very well for their investors lately. Their 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 stock is still way down. I, I want to say about thirty percent lower than its its pre pandemic level. Um, so it's it's one of the worst performers in the space. Um, a lot of people just are really not sold on the fact that anyone's going to want to live in those kind of cities anymore. <laughs> I don't buy it to, to put it mildly. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious to see in their fourth now that we're a few quarters in. Uh, fourth quarter, remember a lot of the stimulus measures had expired or were were on their way out. Like you know, like unemployment benefits weren't um, as as strong as they were in the second and third quarters. So I want to see what how how those kind of things are affecting the numbers in Avalon Bay. And what's the ticker for Avalon Bay? AVB. AVB. All right. Uh, well, I am going to be watching uh, one of my four War on Cash components. PayPal earnings drop on Wednesday after the market closes. Uh, I anticipate it to be a good quarter. I mean, I figured the total total payments volume will likely be exceeding that $1 trillion run rate now. Um, I'll be interested to see how the account holders' guidance shapes up for this coming year. Given what we saw last year, they essentially guided at the beginning of the year for I think 35 million, and then recently basically doubled that guidance, saying that you know it, it just I mean, obviously at the time we weren't going through what we're going through now. Um, but as we move away from cash and move more towards mobile and digital payments. A lot of people are signing up for PayPal services, and uh, Venmo is is one of those services. Venmo last quarter sixty five million users, and they did note that Venmo in twenty twenty one will contribute positively to transaction margin dollars. So profitable Venmo, hey, yes please. Um, and it, it, it's possible you could see a situation where PayPal is a little bit of a victim of its own success, and they're going to come up against some tough comps uh, from 2020. But um, nevertheless, I will be very interested to see how that all develops and be looking for that on Wednesday. Uh, and the ticker for PayPal, of course, is PYPL. Uh, Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week. As always, man, I appreciate you taking the time to jump on and share your knowledge. Of course. I always like joining you on a nice rainy day. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep on doing it as long as they let us. And remember, folks, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 